Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 159 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. I'm remote in uh, Charlotte, actually. I was in D.C. this morning, but uh, as we tape this, and I think for the next four or five Sundays, I'm going to be on the road, so we'll be taping it, mostly from hotels, though I'm at an Admirals Club today, so if you hear background noise, I apologize. Today we have three cases. Uh, Pat was able to find some good stuff in the offerings. Our first case is from the Indiana Appellate Court, John Doe et al. versus KMW et al. The second case is from the Illinois Appellate Fourth District, State Farm Mutual Automobile Insurance Company versus Jenkins. And the third case is from the Illinois Fifth, Wiedemeyer versus the State of Bennett. Turning to our first case, do parents owe a duty of care to protect the child at their home from sexual abuse by their child who was under a safety plan that was not followed, but where the child did not have a history of similar abuse? Can a claim for premises liability be sustained under these facts? Was it proper for the trial court to strike three paragraphs of the plaintiff's expert affidavit on the basis that those paragraphs contained improper opinions as to duty? Those are the questions to be answered when the Indiana Court of Appeals decides John Doe et al. versus KMW et al. The court's summary of the case is, is here, quote, KMW and KGW, the mother and father respectively, respectively of KDW, a minor, hosted a party at their home during which Jewel Doe, a minor, ch- minor child, or John Doe and Jane Doe, was sexually molested by KDW. John Doe and Jane Doe filed a complaint against KMW and KJW, alleging in two counts claims alleging premises liability and negligent parental supervision for the events leading up to and concluding with the sexual molestation of their daughter. The trial court issued an order granting summary judgment in favor of KMW and KGW, finding as a matter of law that despite KDW's troubled temperament and history of poor behaviors, no duty was owed as the particular harm to Jill was not foreseeable, Jill was not a foreseeable victim, and the environment was not such that KMW and KGW should have foreseen the events that occurred. The court further held that as for premises liability, no duty extended to KDW's parents because this molestation of Jill was not something they would anticipate and guard against is something that usually happens or is likely to happen. The court concluded that the presence of a troubled child is not equivalent to a dangerous condition or activity on the premises and granted summary judgment in favor of KMW and KGW. The court also denied the Doe's motion to correct the error as to its decision on premises liability. The Doe's appeal contending that KDW was a looming harm since a duty was owed and also challenged the court's evidentiary ruling, striking an affidavit, end quote. Pat, tell us about this interesting case. It's interesting and troubling all at the same time. True. Uh, it's, but it has implications far beyond the simple facts of this case. Um, the, uh, I, I'm going to, I, I can't keep track of all the acronyms of all everybody because everybody involved is either a minor the parent of a minor who allegedly committed sexual abuse, the parents of a child who was sexually abused or the victim of sexual abuse. 
So I, I, I'm going to do the, do the best I can to try to keep things straight. When Dan said KDW, he wasn't saying KDW. He was saying the letter K, the letter D, the letter W. Um, so a bit confused me during the oral argument when I mixed up who was who. So I, I, I looked into the briefs a bit beyond where what's in the uh, what's it was in the oral argument, and it's a uh, the facts here. One of the key facts here is that this uh, this young man who uh, is alleged to have committed this act of sexual assault on his cousin, as it turns out. Um, was a foster child. Um, and I think that's an important thing because he, I believe he came, or important fact, things wrong word, important fact, because it come, it came to, or the child came to these this family um, as, you know, having had difficulties, obviously. Uh, maybe not obviously, but as many foster children have, you know, that they've got very difficult lives. Apparently, prior to this incident, he was sent to, uh, or was at a camp that got shut down because there was a wholesale lack of supervision and the child, uh, he was cited, was charged with um, inappropriate or sexual battery, but it was over the clothing and it wasn't of the nature of the more serious kind of conduct that happened in the case at issue here. The, the, there's, a, there's an older case um, that uh, called Wells that essentially says under Indiana law, there is no duty for parents to monitor their children. They're not responsible for the torts of their children. Um, what changes the facts, and th- there's been cases since then that s- that seem to, or arguably, at least this is the plaintiff's position, limit that case to its facts. Um, this case it, it involves he had a safety plan, as Dan mentioned. That safety plan was he wasn't supposed to be with around children. It was supposed to essentially be on a line of sight. I, I have handled cases involving people on a safety plan, maybe not for sexual abuse or, or, or risk of that, but other kinds of safety plans, whether it's um, you know, if the predilection of a mentally uh, or developmentally disabled adult or, or young person that may want to get into things and they don't recognize the danger because of their disability and they, uh, they may choke or, or do things that are dangerous without really realizing that they're dangerous because they don't have the mental uh, wherewithal to recognize uh, the danger. Um, and so this child was supposed to be on a line of sight. He plainly wasn't. At the time of the abuse, the, the, the claim was at the oral argument that the children were playing hide-and-go-seek, which is by its very nature uh, the children are not going to be on a line of sight. There was a a young adult um, cousin who was you know, somewhere between the ages of the parents and the children who were playing that had gone upstairs periodically to check on the children where they were playing. This occurred at a family party or family gathering at the uh, defendant's house. Um, and it was the, the owners of the house, the parents whose uh, foster child was the one who had who allegedly committed these acts on, I believe the child who was assaulted was uh, five years older or something like that. Um, and so th- the claim was, is that they weren't, uh, um, they weren't uh, properly supervising the, um, the child, which is obviously um, uh, a big problem. It, but the question really is foreseeability. Um, 
and because you don't have because he hadn't committed acts like this before the the trial court drew a distinction it said well the other conduct in the prior incident was uh was over the clothes and it it wasn't a cousin and this kind of a thing that somehow that made a difference um, i don't know if that makes it made a difference to the uh will make a difference to the appellate court uh we'll we'll, we'll see um uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see what they, what they do. Um, with that, it's, it's a very, very difficult situation. And the reason I brought up the foster care situation is this, is that, can you imagine the difficulty in getting, uh, foster parents to want to, uh, care for a child if they're going to be liable for everything that uh, that they do, um, or for you know, it, it puts it it makes a really it, it very difficult policy uh, situation. So we'll have to uh, it, the the court's got a difficult policy choice to make here. Um, obviously, there was uh, substantial injury to the child uh, who was who was assaulted, but likewise, um, there is a. Uh, you know, there's a broader policy issue at work here. So there may be a legislative work or a legislative work that needs to be done um, or, or something of that nature. Um, it, it's a difficult case, difficult policy issues, but it's one that's important because um, of the kinds of issues we're talking about. So with that, we'll take our first break and come back and we'll discuss an uninsured motorist case from the Illinois Appellate Court, uh, 5th District. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment two of episode 159. And what must a claimant show in order to bring their uninsured motorist claim within coverage? If the alleged at-fault tortfeasor is not cooperative in providing an affidavit as to their insurance status and does not respond to a complaint such that they are defaulted, are there additional steps the claimant must take to bring the claim within coverage? In a circumstance where the police report is not complete and there is not a belief that the at-fault tortfeasor received a copy of the report, uh, is certification from the Illinois Department of Transportation that they are uninsured pursuant to 215 ILCS 143A, a hollow exercise? Should Should Illinois follow the New York, Missouri, and Washington courts and one Alabama court that require mere reasonableness in the in the efforts of plaintiffs or should the court follow Illinois precedent in State Farm versus Leon? Those are the questions that the Illinois Appellate Court 4th District, I misspoke at the end of last segment, I said 5th, I meant 4th. 4th District decides State Farm Mutual Automobile Insurance Company versus Jenkins. Jenkins suffered a catastrophic injury when she was involved in an automobile accident with Tanya Hayes. The police officer cited Hayes for a traffic violation but did not issue a violation 
for not having insurance. He also did not include her address information or the information about her vehicle on the police report. Very strange that none of that happened. Counsel for Jenkins was unable to get Harris to cooperate, or sorry, Hayes to cooperate and, and determine whether she had insurance and he filed suit. She was defaulted in the lawsuit that Jenkins filed against Hayes. Jenkins argues that because she has exhausted reasonable efforts to determine her insurance status. Illinois Insurance Code provides a means to obtain a rebuttal presumption of non-insurance status, and it makes no sense that they did not get that document, as that would shift the burden of state for to show that there was insurance. Um, that's my commentary uh, on that situation. I've dealt with this situation quite a bit. Uh, this The circuit court ruled in favor of the insurer, and the insurer had appealed. Dan, tell us about the oral argument. Sure. And uh, Pat, as you asked the, the question about so 215 uh, LCS 5143A, there's there's a provision that talks about the failure of the motorist from whom the claim is legally entitled to recover damages uh, to file the appropriate forms with the safety responsibility section of the Department of Transportation within 120 days of the accident creates a rebuttable presumption motorist was uninsured at the time of the accident. There was um, a lot of questions uh, of, of this panel, of the, of the advocates, I think both the appellant and the appellee, in terms of what steps were taken. The appellant argued that they exhausted all uh, reasonable remedies. Uh, the police report, it's unclear how uh, bereft of actual facts or circumstances or attribution or anything it was. It sounds like the, the police report didn't really give any guidance at all in terms of this. Uh, the one interesting thing I think that State Farm's advocate argued and raises an interesting issue is in the police report, there is a citation and they have the ability to cite uh, individuals uh, given that there's financial responsibility and insurance responsibility in Illinois that every uh, motorist has to have at least bare minimums of insurance. Uh, there's a citation that you can receive as a driver that says you don't have insurance, which is uh, uh, not a good thing for you. And in this case, the police report does not have any indication or did not mark anything about this. I don't understand how he issued the citation he did issue without having her insured or her her, uh, her address information on it. Right. I right. don't understand how that even happened. No. And apparently he didn't list the vehicle either. Right. I don't understand how that how that's possible. And what is interesting in this case is the claimant, uh, they, they tracked her down, they filed a lawsuit they served her, uh, then she moved. Uh, she didn't respond to any certified mail or anything else. And then they found her new address somehow. She, she had moved uh, somewhere uh, to a different town, I think. And they served her again or sent a letter and uh, she didn't respond. The appellant and, and the uh, claimant in this case, their, their, their biggest argument was uh, that by her not showing up, and by not filing this form with the Department of Transportation and by not responding to anything uh, that that proved that she didn't have uh, insurance. Uh, State Farm's advocates responded back that that's not the case. Uh, and Pat, you and I have talked about this in the commercial context. We've talked about another context where people for a variety of reasons uh, don't want to file uh, insurance claims. Um, you know, the, 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 this is a, a standard carrier, but who knows what what the situation was in terms of her premium, uh, what what uh, kind of car. We, we, we don't know any of this thing. 
things. We don't know. So. We don't know what kind of carrier, if any, Hayes had. Yes, there's a standard right. carrier for the uninsured. Right. Sorry, the injured person. That's right. We don't know if we don't know. Other we don't know so. what she has, if anything. So um, she she could have she could have not standard. She could do it. We just don't know because again, she hasn't been responsive, and so uh, the you know the the, the issue can, here comes down. Like I said, you deal with this a lot. Uh, this is. Is it an uninsured motorist claim? Uh, the appellant, you know, lot, there was some talk about other cases. As you mentioned, Pat, uh, there was talk at the uh, oral arguments. Uh, there are a number of other states and how they, uh, what their rebuttable presumptions are and how they go about this kind of uh, non-responsiveness of a responsible party in, in an auto accident, including the New York Supreme Court. And for those listeners, I think everybody that listens to our show knows this, but the New York Supreme Court is not, in fact, the highest court of New York. The highest court of New York is the New York Court of Appeals. So this is a trial court a decision uh, that was being cited to the New York Supreme Court. And it's always confusing why New York did it that way. When people have been asked, I asked one time, and they said that's just how New York did it when they formed this uh, uh, system in the judiciary in New York. Long time ago. I mean, they yeah. still, there's all kinds of arcane procedures in New York with the blue papers for the motions and, and a whole a whole thing. It's a, but the, citing Missouri and Washington, courts, yep. Supreme Courts of those states for propositions that are adverse to insurers yep. is, uh, is a little rich. Yeah. Uh, because those two states are about as anti-insurer as there is in the country. And the yeah. idea that you're going to cite them, it's like, yeah, maybe not. Especially in personal lines, the, the yeah, state of exactly. Washington has had all kinds of stuff with credit scoring, revisited and recently banded again. Uh, like I said, Missouri. You could uh, go after adjusters personally in Washington for consumer fraud and bad faith. Right. It's it's, it's wild. And early on in the, the, the business interruption coverage, the venue of choice was the Western District of Missouri for, for the same reasons. Um, and, and Missouri's it's a red state but it's kind of an interesting state in terms of its insurance and and these things as we know don't always go uh in alignment you spot you find similar examples west virginia uh mississippi and and apropos of this case alabama yep so and florida for that matter until recently right now one, one of the the uh things that was discussed here uh, was whether State Farm's policy defined lack of adequate insurance and the policy says proof of no insurance and again that's uh, the, the, this uh, specific matter has never been uh, fully resolved in Illinois about how this rebuttable presumption and what steps are sufficient. Uh, the appellant, uh, as you indicated in the introduction, Pat, uh, made this out to be that they'd taken every reasonable step. They filed the two letters. They filed the lawsuit. Um, there was talk about the Illinois Department of Transportation and that that was uh, meaningless, even if they got the, the uh, forms. Uh, the uh, appellee's advocate for State Farm, when it got up, uh, painted it as, as just merely two letters and it wasn't uh, in conformity with the statute, uh, as you raised in your LinkedIn post pad, it raises questions. Uh, if, in fact, uh, the, the court reverses here, what is what is the real uh, power or relevancy of 143A uh, in terms of the uh, framework it sets up for 
rebuttable, rebuttable presumption. So an interesting case. I think we'll see. Uh, uh, you know, on rebuttal, it was interesting. The appellant said we're going to stick with the, jet, the last few minutes of the reply and really focus on the only Department of Transportation uh, and reasonable efforts to ascertain insurance. The uh, he called it a trick that the tortfeasor never had the forms or knowledge to send in the forms. I don't know about that. Um, he mentioned something about a dog is a minister and something else that he's got certificates and I don't really know what that meant. Uh, the, uh, as you said, he restated uh, and, and referred back to the Washington and Missouri cases. And then he mentioned Alabama, which was interesting because the Alabama Supreme Court uh, apparently has dealt with this twice, once for the uh, injured and once against uh, the uh, they in the one case where they did find uh, for uh, the claimant, uh, they found the person, they served her, and then she did not respond. But again, we don't know what Alabama's statutory provisions are or how they do this. So uh, this will be an interesting case to watch. Anything to add, Pat? Indeed, you know, I I, I want to just add one thing: is that the the law is clear that the that the Provisions of the Illinois Insurance Code are incorporated into every policy of insurance. The policy, as are the regulations. There is no regulation that's relevant here, but there's a statute that tells you exactly what you got to do. And I don't understand why they didn't go get the letter. They could have amended the police report. They knew the information about the vehicle. They knew the information about the person. They could have amended the police report, gotten the forms out, gotten the, the certification, um, and created the rebuttal presumption and I and I don't know for the life of me why they didn't do that so we'll take our next break and come back with our third case which is another case that's governed a bit by statute Wedemeyer versus Estate of Bennett hey Podium and Podcast listeners if you want to get in touch with the show you can drop us a line at Podium and Panel Podcast at gmail.com Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment three of episode 159 of the Podium and Panel podcast. Is there a settlement agreement if the plaintiff makes a demand for the policy limit? And in response, the insurer sends an email agreeing sends a check with an email confirming the policy limit and a release that includes the named insured and the insurer as releasees. That along with whether the plaintiff has blown the statute of limitations by failing to name the administrator of the estate of the deceased defendant while naming him in his individual capacity is the question to be answered when the Illinois Appellate Court 5th District decides Wiedemeyer versus the estate of Bennett. Plaintiff's counsel made a demand with certain conditions, all of which were met but refused to accept it because the insurer added itself to the release. The circuit court denied cross motions for summary judgment to decide whether a settlement had been reached and following a bench trial ruled in favor of the defendant. The plaintiff appealed and on appeal, the issue of jurisdiction arose because of the failure of the plaintiff to name the estate of the deceased properly, despite having opened an estate naming her husband as a defendant in his capacity as the special representative. The husband in his individual capacity was previously named for having negligently entrusted the vehicle, but was later dismissed. The statute ran 
before he was named in this representative capacity. Surprisingly, on the issue of settlement, there was no discussion of 735 LCS 5-2-2301, which provides that a defendant must tender a release within 14 days of confirming the settlement. The statute confirms that the written confirmation, not the release, is the settlement agreement. If the plaintiff does not like the release, then you deal with that, but that does not mean there's no settlement. The execution of the release is the performance by the plaintiff of the settlement, just as the payment of money is the performance of the settlement by the defendant and or its insurer. Pat, tell us about oral argument in this case. Thanks, Dan. A really uh, interesting case from what I'm going to start with the, the pendantic procedural point. The court and the parties referred to the blowing of the statute of limitations as depriving the court of subject matter jurisdiction. I have never heard or never thought of, certainly, statute of limitations as being an issue of subject matter jurisdiction. Neither. Um, I, I found that odd. Maybe I'm wrong. I, I, I would be interested in what others have to say about that, but it doesn't seem to me to be a subject matter jurisdictional issue. It seems to me just be, you know, did you, do you have a defense to, uh, to the plaintiff being able to proceed on their action? But it doesn't, subject matter means you're in the wrong court. You can't be, this is not the subject that can be decided. So we've discussed, when we discussed the Green versus State case, this is the case where the, the young man was shot by the police officers, uh, the, the Illinois State Police, do you have to sue them in the court of claims or it, or can you sue them in the circuit court? That's a question of subject matter jurisdiction. If I sue my employer on it without having, you know, if I sue my employer directly after having filed a claim with the Workers' Comp Commission, you know, that's a subject matter jurisdictional issue because the matter belongs in the in the uh, the exclusive remedy belongs in the comp commission and so forth. Um, state courts are courts of general jurisdiction, and by that we mean subject matters. Whereas appellate or the federal courts are are courts of limited jurisdiction. They only hear arising under cases and cases uh, where there is complete diversity, plus seventy five thousand uh, dollars. In and more than $75,000 at, at controversy. So I, I didn't understand that comment. So I welcome others that may be able to said, shed some light on that. So getting to the, the court, the parties took the subject or the, uh, the, the statute of limitations issue first. And this just seems to be some, some sloppiness, but it's a real problem. It sounds like the issue was raised, um, and the court asked for additional briefing on this issue of whether there was um, uh, whether there was jurisdiction, that whether there had the statute had been blown, um, and the plaintiff seems to have a real problem. And I don't think I was in Japan for for, for a month is going to qualify as an excuse for not having gotten this done. So they may never reach the issue because they may find that the statute was blown and the case is over. Uh, I really would like for them to reach the more interesting issue, which is the uh, settlement issue. Uh, there's a lot of cases, there's a lot of states where you have this mirror image taken to the extreme. There was a case in late um, June from Georgia where the defendant insurer didn't put a comma between the name of the plaintiff's firm and LLC. And the court held that wasn't the check wasn't in conformity with the demand, and they were out of luck. A comma, people. That seems to be a little ridiculous. But Illinois doesn't have that. Illinois has where you have a, uh, a confirmed settlement. That's the settlement, and then you deal with the release. And there's no time frame 
within which the release has to be agreed. In fact, it doesn't even have to that says doesn't even say the release has to be agreed to. You could you could tender over a release that the plaintiff doesn't agree to, and then you haggle over the release. It doesn't mean you don't have a settlement. Um, as as Dan said, the the release is the performance. It's not the agreement. Um, the agreement is the typically the email exchange or the telephone conference confirmed by the letter exchange or email exchange um, that says, yeah, I've agreed to settle the matter for X, Y, Z dollars, and perhaps there's other conditions. But this statute applies to personal injury and property damage cases, which this case plainly is. Uh, and it seems quite clear that the plaintiff's attorney was trying to set up the insurance company. Uh, this was Geico on the other side, and Geico sent not only the release, not only an agreement to pay the, the policy limit, they sent a release and they sent the check. Um, so they, they front, they, which they didn't have to do under Illinois law because the check wasn't due until the release was paid, but they put crazy conditions on it, violative of section 2301. And so they file, they, instead of following the statute, they followed what the plaintiff said because they're used to dealing with crazy states and as a consequence, they now are finding themselves in a, in a difficult situation because they had the temerity to put themselves on the release. I have never settled a case where the insurance company who's paying the money isn't on the release. Uh, I don't know why they can't be. Uh, it has happened where they say, well, my client's carrier is, an, is also your client's carrier. There's a cross-claim situation. And I want to make sure they know that they aren't getting out of this whole case. Sure. Carve it out. This only applies to the torque claim or the liability claim here. It doesn't apply to any underinsured motorist claim. Fine. That's not what we agreed to settle, an underinsured motorist claim. We agreed to settle a liability claim. So let's settle that. And then we'll deal with the rest of it later. Um, that's usually amenable. Um, it's typically not a problem. Uh, so I don't understand what their objection was other than to play games. Uh, and I hope they get burned here. I, I, you know, I, I really don't understand what they – what plaintiff's attorney is trying to get over, trying to get over here. Uh, he needs to take $25,000 and be happy uh, and then go after his underinsured motorist carrier, which he plainly has. And I don't know why he didn't already do that, um, except that he uh, is trying to set up the insurance company and they plainly took actions to prevent that from happening. Um, we'll, we'll see what the court does. I hope they reach, as I said, I hope they reach the settlement issue. Dan, what are your thoughts? I agree with you, Pat. I don't know what's going on here and, I, I, I think the same thing. You should uh, take what's on the table and be done with it. And this settlement was reached in 2019. Right. Over four years hence. My goodness. This is, take I mean, the money. This, is, this also is just common. I mean, it's it's one of those things that, the, you know, this is not a an unusual request. It, it, it's not he an unreasonable it every, request. No. He has to see it every day in his practice. I mean, that's if you do auto cases, this is what you have. I mean, I wouldn't, if I were, to, if I were on the defense side, I wouldn't uh, sign a final release without getting releases of, of the insurer as well. Otherwise, what's the point? Right. You don't want to set themselves up. So that brings us to uh, BI for COVID. Uh, nothing this week, but we'll keep uh, checking. Our prediction yep. sure to go wrong this week, Dan. We were 1-0-2. Oh, sounds like a... An unusual like one. What's that? Unusual. It's, it's very unusual. It's like a hockey team or a exactly, soccer team. Exactly. What I was going to say. <laughs> nil, <Exactly>. nil. <laughs> didn't know we were. Didn't know we were playing soccer or hockey. Uh, Dan is two thirty six fifty five and seventeen. I am two thirty three fifty eight and seventeen. Uh, we punted on Cancel versus Kreider from episode one fifty two. 
This is a case where the patient, uh, a a female patient of a dermatologist was allegedly groped uh, by a doctor doing an eczema exam. He claims no groping. He claims proper uh, inspection uh, for eczema. Um, The issue here was whether this was medical malpractice or not. And whether getting back to our subject matter jurisdiction issue, whether this whether the court had subject matter jurisdiction over the issue, uh, over the case, and the court's held no, it does because she's alleged sexual battery in essence, not in essence, she's alleged sexual battery, and that has nothing to do whatever with medical the uh, providing treatment. Now, if the doctor wants to say he was providing treatment, he's going to have to explain how what she says he did to her had anything to do with medical treatment and a jury's going to have to decide what he did. Uh, it's a, he said, he said, she said, because apparently they were alone when the circumstance, when the, uh, when the alleged assault occurred. Um, so we will, we will see, this is not the last we've seen of this case, but we punted on this one because we couldn't make heads or tails out of what to do with this because the case law seemed to be a bit all over the place. Although it seemed much clearer when we read the opinion, Dan, anything to add on that? I think Dan is. We, we've had some. We've had some technical difficulties. I may have lost Dan here, but the, we've got uh, Dinnerstein versus Google. This is a case that was argued in September of 2021, and the opinion came out this week. No, I did not misspeak. Uh, so this is a case where the, the it's a privacy case. This is also important that the dismissal is on jurisdiction only because the court found no standing. So again, a subject matter jurisdictional issue. It found it found no standing, and so the um, the court. This is the case where the the person goes to the University of Chicago, gets treated, um, and his records were shared with the um, with Google as part of their AI search. Apropos, it comes out in the middle of a huge thing on AI. Uh, you know, being the the very much in the zeitgeist um, uh, right now, and so this comes out in the middle of that. Now, the, the the important reason why the important thing about this being a dismissal based upon uh, jurisdiction is it does it means that the plaintiff can now file in state court, which they will no doubt do. Um, so the um, the they, they will no doubt. Uh, File refile in state court, which they can do because this was not a dismissal on the merits. The district court had dismissed a portion of the claim on the merits, but the court said we're not even reaching that because they haven't actually stated any injury because he can't claim that his information was misused. We'll see. Um, apropos of a discussion I had this week, apparently based upon the standing position of the state of the federal court, uh, FDCPA cases in particular are beginning to be filed in Illinois state courts. Um, as a way to uh, deal with, you know, way to get uh, a court to hear these because they won't, the Seventh Circuit does not find jurisdiction in many of these, or sorry, doesn't find standing and therefore no subject matter jurisdiction. And so they've begun to file in state court. So this will be fun. We'll now begin to do FDCPA case, cases um, and uh, um, in, in, state, uh, in state court. So the last one is Illinois appellate was from the Illinois appellate court. Uh, last, going back real quick, the Dinnerstein case we talked about on episode fifty six, episode one fifty four we discussed Midwest Bank versus Rossi, 
Uh, I did a column about that uh, after it, and I, my next column is going to be touch on the issue. Uh, but this dealt with uh, dealt with not only some issues regarding evidence at trial, regarding testimony about an article that the family found that would relate the uh, injury that the plaintiff had suffered that ultimately led to her a coma and death following a bar- uh, bariatric surgery. They found an article that they claimed, well, the doctor should have found it. The court found that the, the testimony was not uh, prejudicial, that in fact, some of it had been elicited by uh, defense counsel. So that was the substantive issue. But the real issue, the reason we took an interest in this case in particular, was because of the prejudgment interest discussion. And uh, Justice Steigman, who really questioned counsel for the uh, plaintiff closely on the issue, uh, said, after a long discussion of all the shenanigans by the appellate court, by the uh, General Assembly violating the three readings rule, and after having rejected all the other separation of powers, due process, uh, retroactivity, all those kinds of arguments that were made to challenge the constitutionality of the statute, the court said, quote, we wholeheartedly agree with the Fifth District's assessment. This is the accurate firearms case, which is another case involving a statute passed in violation of the three readings rule from the uh, Illinois Constitution. Continuing, this court is disheartened that we are compelled to reject Rossi's challenge out of hand when the violation appears so blatant. This court is placed in a strange position when it is constitutionally required to turn a blind eye to a grave constitutional violation by a co-equal branch of government. So let's just say Justice Steigman and his colleagues on the 4th District Appellate Court are not a fan of the uh, of the of the enrolled bill doctrine, which allows the uh, Speaker of the House and the Senate president to wave their hand at the Constitution and not follow it. We will likely find, we may, I should say likely, we may find out um, what the Supreme Court thinks about this issue because Roe versus Raul is coming out this week on Tuesday. We got an announcement on Friday that uh, the Supreme Court's going to issue a decision on Tuesday, a bit unusual. This is the Safety Act case that dealt with uh, that dealt with um, bond, uh, uh, the elimination of cash bail in Illinois, and the uh, so we'll find out one of the challenges that was brought, and the trial court in that case said he was also bound by the enrolled bill doctrine that he could not go against, and so he even though he found a direct violation of the. Um, a direct violation of the three readings rule. Dan and I discussed that case on episode 140. Uh, we, uh, we, we said that they would reverse the trial court. This is a constitutional challenge where the court found portions of the statute unconstitutional. So it went right to the Supreme Court, no appellate court decision. And so uh, this is, uh, we discussed that on episode 140. So keep an eye out for that, a big decision. So the, um, the last, uh, so we need to do our predictions sure to go wrong for this week. Dan is, we've lost him in the airport there. Uh, so for John Doe, I think we have affirms right across the way. Uh, I think John Doe gets affirmed. I think that the uh, um, state state farm case gets affirmed. And I we think that the Wiedemeyer case gets affirmed. Uh, we'll see on what basis Wiedemeyer gets affirmed. Which brings us uh, to our... Uh, our, our rule of the week that I found um, that, of course, because it's a, uh, um, of course, because 
it, it came from uh, Corey uh, Corey Webster. Uh, we we another Corey of the week. We will uh, we're actually going to cover it next week because I can't get the thing to open and I can't remember what it is. So we're going to cover that one next week. <laughs> so we don't actually have a rule of the week because I can't remember what we talked about. So with that, we'll take our leave and see, and see everybody next week on the Podium and Panel Podcast. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the Podium and panel. Each episode on the Podium and Panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.